and welcome back to the Grid Talk podcast, everybody. This is episode number 170. I'm your host, George Housen, and join me today for an episode of F1 Firesides, its author, Kit Chapman. Kit, how are you doing? How's life treating you? Life's pretty good, thanks. Yeah, I just uh, come, came back to the UK from Thailand, so I've gone from 35 degrees and you know tropical beaches to hurricanes and storms, but other than that, it's been fine. <laughs> yes, we've had three big storms back to back in the UK. And you didn't say you didn't say which is the better, so I'll take it that the brother's better here. So, uh, <laughs> so the reason why we are interviewing Kit, I have mentioned that um, obviously he's an author. I've got the book right here, Racing Green: How Motorsport Science Can Save the World, and it's a very literal title, and it's a very good way to describe the book. Um, but in your own words, Kit, how would you describe this book? Because I've been reading through it and there's there's so much information here from so many different uh, facets of the world, not just motorsport, but health and history and everything. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a science geek and I'm a scientist who has been a, a fan of Formula One since I was a kid. So I was looking for a way to sort of bring the two loves of my life together. And there are so many books that are written about Formula One and motorsport in general that are from the perspective of someone in motorsport and they don't look at the wider picture. They don't talk about the stories around the science. So I wanted to do something that looked at that. There are so many things coming out of Formula One, other aspects of motorsport as well, that are focused on saving our planet. They affect climate change. They, they basically protect people. And I really wanted to tell that story uh, in a way that I hope was funny, informative and immediately accessible for anyone who's just got a passing interest either in the sciences or in Formula One in general. That's a really good way to sum it up. It's, um, you know, I don't want to say it's a, a beginner's guide to stuff, but in, in, in some ways it is because it, I, I found it fascinating. I've, I've done an engineering degree myself and I got a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, but I felt like even if I didn't have that background, I could understand all of it. You've explained everything in there extremely well. And obviously, you know, there's, there's quite a bit in here. There's a lot of attention to details, a lot of information that's gone in here as well. And there's a lot of time that's probably gone into it as well. And Obviously, we've had the the pandemic over the last few years as well. So, from from start to finish, how did they how did long did this all take? Well, I started it in two thousand and nine, and it started in a strange way. I was I just finished one of my previous books, and I was trying to lose a bit of weight because I'm a chunky monkey, and I'd gone to exercise at a friend's house, and he said, "I can't make it to the gym. Can we can we go to a mutual friend's house and we'll do? He's got a private gym. It'll be fantastic." And the mutual friend happened to be Martin Short, who is a Le Mans driver. Uh, on the driveway was um, a Brabham, and in fact, David Brabham next to it. And suddenly, I'm in the world of, of Formula One drivers and you know, million-pound supercars. And we got talking about the tech, and, uh, and it just sounded like a great idea for a book. I thought, okay, this is going to be fantastic. I know the stories. I know where I want to visit. We can go to Monaco. We can go over to America and talk to NASCAR. I thought it was going to take me about six, seven months to get everything together. And then, of course, I'm halfway around the world. I'm in a shire, Argentina, where Extreme E is about to have a race towards the end of their season. And suddenly COVID hits. And so everything goes on hold. And that was a real problem because the book suddenly couldn't, I couldn't go and visit Williams. Um, I had a visit to Williams cancelled about eight times. And in the end, I just had to sort of come up and, and do things as best I could throughout the year. But there was also an amazing story with how Formula One reacted to COVID and how Mercedes in particular started tackling it and produced 10,000 breathing machines for the NHS in essentially 14 days, which is just phenomenal, going from never having created a CPAP device, this breathing machine, uh, to actually just mass producing it to medical standards. 
And that really shows the power of Formula One. So it was far, far more tricky than I thought it was going to be. COVID obviously was uh, a real disaster, but it's it's small fry considering other people suffering during COVID. So I've got no complaints. No, definitely, definitely. We've uh, like like you said in the book, we've literally lost millions of people around the world to uh, to that horrible disease. And I hope it's on the way out now. We seem to be getting better, obviously, but you know, still ways to go with all that. But uh, I mean, you rightly highlight. I mean, that's the one. That's the part of the book. That's the chapter of the book. Uh, I think it was the Race for Life uh, chapter. I might have got the name wrong, but. You know, that's the one that touched me the most personally because reading about that is something we heard about at the time, but obviously there was there was so much happening. You know, it's kind of hard to keep on top of it. And a lot of us, including me, I kind of just tuned out of the news because it was so depressing. I just kind of, you know, kind of kept myself to myself with that. But reading about it, the way you described it and that effort by those teams, and that kind of shows that, you know, some people, some critics of motorsports like Formula One might say, oh, what's the point? It's just a bunch of playboys going around in million pound cars, it's just a big show off for all these big brands and all this and that. But in a time of crisis like that, they pulled together using the technology, using the genius that they had at their disposal, some of the, the smartest designers in the world to save thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. Who knows? And I think that's, I think that's an incredible story that you highlighted there. I think one of the things that I love about Formula One, part of the reason that I probably love it is that the sport Every other sport, it's the individual and then the technology helps that individual. You know, Lionel Messi is going to be a great footballer regardless of what boots he's wearing. But if you put Lewis Hamilton in a Haas, he's probably not going to win a Formula One Grand Prix. So it's a sport that it's not just a team sport. It's a sport for engineers. It's who can actually design the best. And there's some great quotes from some of the McLaren team in the book where they were talking about this, saying there are people who could go on and design you know, jet fighters if they wanted to. But they don't want to because they would only see it fly once in their careers. Whereas in Formula One, they can see that change happen every one, two weeks when they update a package. And so there are so many different stories like that. And how they take that ideas, the ideas they learn in Formula One and spill that out into other technologies. A great example there is, is Caroline Hargrove, who uh, went into Formula One. She started working on simulations at McLaren. She actually built the first F1 simulator. She was working with uh, Juan Pablo Montoya and David Coulthard. And now she's designing health apps. She's using that simulation technology to actually build a virtual you, a virtual replica of a human being so that you can work out how to extend your life through smart choices. So these are incredibly smart people who can really apply themselves and make a huge difference to whole areas of our society. That's the thing. It, it can be designed for one thing, but then it can be used for a whole other or in, like, in, you know, innovated to be applied to other things. That's that's the beauty of engineering and design, really, isn't it? So obviously you mentioned that this book was a very long time in the making. I'm quite surprised you said over 10 years in total, <laughs> but obviously particularly. So it's not 10 years. Over 10 years in total. But yeah, so sorry, I mean. Sorry, sorry 2019, 2019. Oh, 2019, you said 2009. Oh, my bad. No, no, okay. okay. <laughs> it's it's two, two years and a bit. Okay, uh, two years, two years and a bit in total, and obviously you mentioned that uh, Williams, um, you know, they, you, you were meant to visit the factory like eight times or whatever, and it just never happened. Was and a lot of interviews uh, got put online. A lot of events didn't happen or got postponed. Was was there anything particularly that you were looking forward to that got cancelled or, or whatever through through this pandemic for the book? I had uh, I had invites, I had tickets to pit lane and a, and a GP, and um, it got cancelled. And so I think that actually being on track, I have been to GPs before, been very lucky that I have actually gone the pit, down the pit lane before, had a VIP pass for Silverstone one year just for qualifying, but that was just an incredible experience. 
And um, I was really hoping to, to actually see some of the uh, the actual pit stuff in action. I had an invite into one of the team's garages and obviously it just never happened because of COVID. So that was a real down point. But um, we're talking to some teams at the moment. We're hoping to uh, to see what we can do and maybe in the future. Who knows? Maybe for the next book. Who knows? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you mentioned that you're a quote unquote bit of a bit of a nerd when it comes to this sort of stuff. So what, what is your background for people that aren't familiar with you? Well, my, my science background is I, I'm a science historian now, but I used to work for Chemistry World magazine. I've written for Nature and New Scientist, things like that. PhD is actually in the, the science and history of, of atomic bombs. And, uh, and building elements that don't exist on Earth, so messing around with plutonium, stuff like that. But there's enough overlap in engineering and science and, and some of the basic elements of science to sort of cover that. And of course, as I mentioned, I am a lifelong Formula One fan. I mean, I grew up, I'll be honest, I grew up uh, cheering, well, first of all, Nigel Mansell. And then I started moving over and actually started becoming a huge Ricardo Patrese fan because I felt like he was the, the nearly man every time. I just wanted him to, to win, and now he had to give the race to Mansell. So um, I've been loving uh, Formula One for probably about 30 years now. And who, who are the drivers and teams that you follow these days? Then I know you've obviously got ties to a Virgin race and used to race in Formula One that currently race in Formula E, but who's your team now? Is it Williams? Uh, my team now is probably, I mean, if I had a team, I, I love what McLaren are doing, um, particularly mm. the way we're constantly innovating. And I've, been speaking to McLaren about some of the stuff they're doing with um, they're using flax fibers because now since 21 regula- uh, 2021 regulations you can use bamboo and flax and linen in your cars and so they've already started adopting that they were really in terms of drivers I think Sir Lewis Hamilton is the greatest Formula One driver of all time he's yeah I, I think the guy is just terrific I really like what Aston Martin are doing as well this season uh, and last season I think that they're going to come along and uh, they're going to be really strong in the future They've definitely got a lot of potential and obviously with the regulation changes this year, they could leapfrog up the grid. We've talked about this quite a bit. There's a lot of unknowns going into the season, which always makes it more entertaining. Yeah, there are. I mean, obviously there's the big shift with the, with the aero packages, the emphasis on ground effect, which is going to be really interesting. But with the salary cap as well and just that cutting down of money, it's there is going to be a, a bunching up and you're going to see, I don't know which one it's going to be, but you're going to see what is normally a mid-tier team leap up and start getting on podiums. And I'm curious who it's going to be. I think there are going to be some teams that will still struggle. I can't see, for example, Williams leaping up as fast to get to the point where they're actually challenging. They're just not there at the moment. Oh, that's another driver I love, George Russell. I think I genuinely think he's going to be a superstar. And we're really interesting to see what he does with a Mercedes. But I think this year, probably you're looking at Mercedes, Red Bull, maybe Ferrari uh, coming back. But it'll be interesting to see. That was going to be one of my questions later on, actually. Can I push you for some <laughs> predictions early on? We've, give, we've given ours on the show and we're going to, going to, going to give them some more, some more detail later on as well. We've, we've only seen the cars. We haven't seen them actually race. We've seen McLaren do a little shakedown at, at not very much speed at Circuit de Catalonia ahead of the, uh, the pre-season test that isn't actually a test because you can't call it testing because Bahrain have trademarked testing this year. But who, who do you think are the favourites? Obviously, Red Bull, Mercedes, those are the two best teams last year. But like you said, Ferrari... They look good. The car looks beautiful. If it, you know, if it goes as fast as it looks, yeah. they, in theory, there is there is a theory that, that the more beautiful that car looks, the faster it's going to go. I don't think it always applies, but um, I think that the, the thing is, who's the who are the teams that have that have got this expertise in aero? Because Formula One always 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 boils down to aero. You've got to have a good engine, absolutely, 
but it's who's got the aero, aero expertise. And I think it's probably going to be Mercedes. I can't see them struggling. I think Red Bull's going to be interesting because Adrian knew he's got a whole bunch of tools that he wants to play with. And bear in mind, you haven't had ground effects since, what, 82 now, 1982? I think it was pretty much mm. in a way. So this is new for him because new he really started coming into prominence late 80s, early 90s. So mm. I'm fascinated to see what Adrian Newey is going to do with uh, with Red Bull. Uh, I think that's going to be really interesting. I think Haas are going to struggle. They just were off the pace, and I don't think they've got the drivers. As we mentioned, Nikita Mazepin, and we were talking sort of before this, I don't think he's Formula One. I don't think he's good enough, if I'm brutally honest. I don't think he's, I think it's probably everyone jokes about Mazepin and, and things like that. I think that's probably a little bit hard, uh, harsh on him. But he's just, there, there are many reasons that people dislike Nikita Mazepin. I'm very aware of them, but I just don't think he's a good enough driver for Formula One. So I think they're probably going to be the back markers this year. Yeah, I think that will probably still be near the back. I, I think they might improve compared to where they were last year, but that's not really saying much because they, they're really bad, obviously. And I, I agree. I agree with you about Mazepin. You know, I honestly think he, he could be good enough for Formula One one day, but he's not there right now. I think there, I think there is some talent there, but it's, it's obviously it's massively overshadowed by his off-track antics as well. Absolutely. Uh, as I said, there, there are reasons you're not going to like Nikita Mazepin, especially when you put him next to Mick Schumacher, who's got a lot of goodwill. And and also, obviously, there's question marks over Haas and the colour of their cars and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's going to do them any favours this year, given wider circumstances. I think you know what I'm referring. I don't know how, how oblique I should be referring to, to that particular design. I think people know. People know. <laughs> people who listen to this show regularly will know what we're talking about. We do we do give mentions to things like this, you know, relating to the, the race that doesn't have a country technically. I know what you're referring yeah. to, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things like that. But you, you've seen sort of, there are drivers in the past where it's very clear that they're driving because they can fund the drive. Now, things, I mean, the last one who probably won a race was Pastor Maldonado, I think. And with all respect to Pastor, he was... Again, probably not a great Formula One driver. But you look at some of the other uh, series that are going on. F2's got some fantastic drivers coming up. Some of the drivers in Formula E who probably, once you end up in Formula E, I think it's unlikely you're going to return to Formula One. Um, you kind of you kind of had your shot, unfortunately. But there are some terrific drivers there. Um, you know, people like De Vries who have, who have moved over there now having success. You've got um, uh, Antonio De Costa, who, again, in Formula One, now in Formula E, doing very, very well. So you've got some terrific drivers who, who just probably have fallen by the wayside. I'm interested to see whether or not we, we're going to have a, a female Formula One driver as well soon. I mean, there are certain some candidates in, uh, in the W Series. I think Jamie Chadwick's terrific. Maybe she's going to get a seat one day. Who knows? Yeah, I totally agree with you with, with Chadwick. I'd, I'd love to see a, a female driver, driver in Formula One. It's something that has not happened in my lifetime. Uh, believe it or not, it's, I think 93 was the last one. So literally before my time. And I would love to see Chadwick do it. I just want to see how she competes in Formula 3 or Formula 2. I think she's good enough to at least give it a go. I mean, she's definitely better than drivers like Alessio de Leda. Let's be honest here. She would not do any worse than him. So why not give her a shot? She's absolutely bossed the W Series. She's clearly the best of that pack. So why not give her a chance in one of those? I don't know what she's doing this year. I know she's the Williams test driver, but I'd love to see how she gets on in series like that. Yeah, I don't think she's in. Uh, she she was extreme before um, last season. I don't think she's in extreme this, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, Williams have got this track record of giving some drive drivers a shot. Why not? You know, for one race, what does it matter? And we saw that obviously two seasons back now uh, with uh, when when Lewis was ill, that George Russell stepped up to Mercedes. 
we've got a slot available. You can do that for one race. Why not experiment? It's, it's strange how we've moved away from the heyday of the 1970s, 1980s, where there were drivers, multiple drivers in a, in a, a season, and people would get a, a tri-drive, essentially. You saw that in the 1990s as well. And since the 2000s, we, we just haven't seen that. It's always been, here's the you know, first driver, second driver. Maybe we should go back to, uh, to trying people out. I mean, what's the harm? Well, no, I, I agree with you from a racing perspective. It's definitely more interesting getting some different faces in there, but there's things like sponsorships. Obviously, these drivers and the backers, they pay a lot of money to get them in the car. And if they're saying, oh, you can only do 20 races out of 23, they'd be like, oh, I don't want to send my guy there. I'll send him to something else, you know? Sure, so there's that side too. We're now increasing up to 24 races. And we didn't actually have 23 races until what? two, three seasons back, essentially. And we were even considering it. We were at 20 races solid. So you've got a couple of extra races here in, in territories around the world that might not have the sponsorship opportunities of other major races. You know, let's give them a shot. What, what, what's the harm? I, I'd love to see someone, you know, zoom around Vietnam circuit, for example. And uh, I, think, I think give the new bloods a shot. You might find the next superstar. And if you do, and if, it's, if you find that Jamie Chadwick you know, is, is up there in the, in the top five on the grid, then obviously that is inspirational for, for a lot of women who, who might think, hey, I can become a Formula One driver. There's obviously marketing and sponsorship opportunities as well. You, you're right, that's part of the sport now. I just think there's an opportunity and, and we shouldn't be overlooking it. I agree. I agree in a purest, in a purest sense for sure. Then obviously the other thing is the super license points, which are so mm. mysterious. Like they, they say what people get for when winning certain series like if you win f2 you can get into f1 pretty much you can get a super license that's, that's pretty much what it is but someone like jamie chadwick is like has she got enough i don't know you know yeah. it's, it's confusing I don't, I don't know how super license points work if i'm honest and i mean w series does count now um mm. i think uh in saying i think they introduced that what two years back they actually added them into super license something like that mm. so i i mean i don't know the ins and outs of it and they're Let's be honest, there are bigger problems than the FIA need to address much more rapidly at the moment. Um, but it's something to think about. It's something we should be looking at because racing is going to really shake up in the next sort of two, three years. Once we get to 2025, Formula One, as we see it at the moment, is not going to be the same sport. We're going to start moving away from turbo hybrid. We're going to start looking at other things. We're going to see more ways to try and increase sponsorship, more ways of trying to get more people into the sport. I don't know quite how that's going to shake up, particularly in the technology standpoint, but it's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, Formula One, they want to go, their big aim is that they want to go carbon neutral by 2030. And obviously, that's, that's only eight years away. It's not that far yeah. away at all. Now, it's a challenge for them, because bear in mind that Formula E has got the exclusive license on electric. So you can't go with the ICE, you can't stay with turbo hybrid. What are you going to move to? Is it going to be hydrogen? Is that something they're going to look at? Are they going to look at biofuels? Are they going to look at uh, a sort of this, this, you know, Paddy Lowe's got zero petroleum, for example. Now he's looking at synthetic fuels and that's where he's moved off to. It's going to be really interesting to see how they actually get to that carbon neutral point. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, um, it's, it's a big goal and it's an admirable goal for sure, but um, they're going to have to make some big changes to be able to actually achieve it. For a, for a sport, obviously, with, with so, much, so many ridiculous logistics and, obviously, and the racing itself as well. And like you said about the electric engine, it's like it's, it does feel like it'd be a bit too soon for Formula One anyway to go fully electric because then if that happens, then 
you know, a lot of people say, what's the point of Formula E at that point? Which is a question I'm going to pose to you because obviously you've had a lot of involvement in that series. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things I've, I've actually, because uh, that was, so I had, was really lucky. I had 45 minutes with um, Alessandro Agag, who's obviously the supremo for Formula E for me. And one of the questions I said was, you know, if Formula Formula One does go electric, what happens to Formula E? And he was kind of a, a little bit defensive. He was saying, well, you know, we've got this exclusive license, things like that. But it will go to the wayside. There's no question there. It was uh, a really interesting discussion about uh, the W Series as well. If women become start moving into Formula One, you start seeing that more. Should we get rid of the W Series? And someone posed them the question that in 20 years, if W Series still exists, is that a success or a failure? Particularly given its aim. It's, it, these are big questions. So the answer is, I don't know. And I, I kind of wish I did, but I'm really interested to find out. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And like you said about the, the W Series, well, that's something I never really considered. Yeah, if it formally, you know, if, if W Series is still around, if they need to feel the need to segregate women out of um, regular motorsport, it's, um, you know, it's given the spotlight. It, yeah, I suppose in that sense, it would have failed because they're having to go to that series. But maybe it could evolve into something else. Maybe Formula E could evolve into something else one day to kind of keep going because um, obviously there's still teams there, there's still investors there, there's still a car there. Yeah, and bear in mind that for Formula One, for most of its history, it's only been around since 1950, but for most of its history, there were, were non-championship races that everyone went to. You know, So that this idea of racing outside of the championship is something that is well-established. We could see all kinds of alternatives going on. It could be that we sort of suddenly dip out and we see something else. We just don't know. But I think the one thing that we've got to bear in mind as well is, I'm sure you remember the, the feedback when we did go turbo hybrid about the mm. noise and what it sounded like and there wasn't this throaty sort of growl and obviously we've gone down in terms of uh, rpm in the engines we've gone down in terms of, uh, of overall speed on the track as well this season we're going to see a drop in horsepower probably we're looking at what 10 to 20 hp drop just because of different changes so uh, particularly the fuel moving up to 10 percent biofuel so there are changes going on and they're always going to be resistant to change We've got to remember, though, that Formula One is the flagship of motorsports. It is the pinnacle. It doesn't get better than that. When you look at the Triple Crown, you know, the golden one that everyone wants is Monaco. You can't get rid of the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. So all of that means that we've got to sort of always, we've got to look after Formula One a little bit. Even if it is that big cash cow, even if there are billions piling into it, it's something, we, it's, it's something precious. It's something magical. And any change to it, we've got to be careful. But we are going to have to change. There's no question. Yeah, definitely. And you, you don't want to give excuses to Formula One, but if you are going to make an exception for anything, it would be for that because it is the creme de la creme. It is the top of the top of the food chain when it comes to when it comes to motorsport. But at the same time, as well, it has to also drive it. It has to lead the way with these kind of things as well because it's an influencer. You know, like you said, if if Jamie Chadwick got to Formula One, that would influence little girls to to go and take up karting that wouldn't have done it otherwise because they've got a hero they've got someone to look up to and i'm sure they're sure the same that for a lot of uh, uh children of color as well when they look at lewis hamilton and how well he's doing one of the big challenges really with uh, with motorsport in general but particularly formula one is the sheer cost of actually getting to the top so i mean you see kids obviously you know in the streets of brazil the favelas uh, they can make it out from football and things like that they have no access to a car they, they probably never been karting in their life you talk to someone like Lucas de Grassi, who's talked about the fact that he, he didn't come from a particularly rich family. 
um, someone like Sam Bird, whose parents had to mortgage their their house just to get him up the ladder. And obviously, he did make it to Mercedes in the end. It's an incredibly tough environment to get up to. And we've really got to look at how we're going to um, to foster the next generation, but it because it can't just be rich white kids driving around the track, rich rich white male kids. Um, we've really got to sort of broaden that out, and that's a big question that the FIA has to talk about and has to work out how to overcome. And again, there are whole complicated reasons for it. There's sponsorship, there's things like that. There's there's driver programs, a speeder series. How does it all happen? How do you actually restructure the pyramid? But we've got a terrific um, president now in the FIA who who will probably look at this and we need to start addressing it. Yeah, a new face at the top is, uh, well, hopefully it'll be good for the for the sport as a whole. I'm very optimistic about it at the end of the day. And yeah, I, I feel like, ironically, the fact that obviously the engines are so advanced nowadays, they are so, they are so complicated. They're also so efficient and so good, <laughs> especially in Formula One. That has that has driven the cost up, and that is also as well. It's precipitated down. With, I think Formula Two they have hybrid engines now as well. No doubt those will be way more expensive than the regular petrol ones they used to have. But you have to you have to push the push the envelope at the end of the day. You have to drive these these changes otherwise because the car the car manufacturers won't do it. The car if it weren't for Countries like the UK and France saying, right, we're not going to do petrol or diesel cars after 2030, after 2040, I think it is in France. And if it wasn't for that, they would not do that change. They keep doing whatever they're doing because they're still making money, you know? Yeah. And and to come back to the book, one of the things that you see is when things are out in the in the real world, if you like, if you're talking about car manufacturers, the change happens at the bottom. There's sort of a drive to make things cheaper, not necessarily more efficient. And so you do see some changes that happen on the roads, but they are driven by the government. If you want to have real impactful change, you've got to drive it at the top. And that's where motorsport and in general comes in. Uh, I mean, the great example is, is something like driverless cars and AI. The fact that at the moment we're slowly building up speed. So the, the cars that you're seeing tested by you know, various tech companies in San Francisco, for example, their aim is we go slow and then we slowly build to, to the point we can go fast. In something like Robo Race, the whole point is we're going fast and then we can bring down the technology to actually save speeds for, for you know, commuters and things like that. So tackling it from that, that speed angle and then bringing the technology down, you spoke about that really efficient uh, ICE. Obviously, we've got you know thermal efficiency above 50% now. That is technology that we can start to adapt to the road, but we need to bring it back. And companies are aware of it. I mean, there was discussion, obviously, about the... Um, MGUH, and whether or not that's something we need to remove from the sport entirely because there's no road applications. So people are thinking about it, how to, to simplify the technology to put it on the roads. But motorsport, as you say, leads the way, and particularly Formula One. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've, we've mentioned um, alternative fluids and fuels, and it's not, it's not just all about electric. I mean, I found this fascinating. I don't really follow endurance racing that well. I, I've tried to watch Le Mans, but obviously it's 24 hours. It's just too long for me. I, you know, I'll see who wins and which team wins and stuff. <laughs> what was that? Sorry. It is literally a day. It is literally an entire day. I'm, there's people in the Grid Talk podcast crew that watch the whole race start to finish. You know who you are if you're listening. I admire that, but I personally cannot do that. But there's an example here where it's, uh, where is it? The, uh, the 4Z8 from the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, the hydrogen power car that's hoping to enter the 24-hour Le Mans. I mean, I, I remember James May on Top Gear years ago talking about uh, hydrogen-powered, I think it was a Honda, mm. I think it was a Japanese car, and he was in America, and he was 
And he was talking about hydrogen, thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. And now it's starting to get into racing, at least in that form. I mean, what are your thoughts on that about being potentially the future? I think it's really exciting. I've spoken to a couple of F1 insiders and hydrogen is something that we talk about when we're talking about alternatives for engines. Hydrogen is one of those strange things because the technology itself, it's actually easier to power a giant city with a hydrogen engine than it is a car because you have to shrink the technology down. The big problem with hydrogen, obviously, is it's a gas, uh, and everyone immediately thinks about the Hindenburg. Yes, that was hydrogen, but don't worry about it. It's not quite like that. And the problem is containing it. How do you shrink it down into a car? How do you actually put that on your driveway? And that's incredibly complicated. How do you actually store the hydrogen in a way that's safe, that you don't have this massive high-pressure container? And the answer we find is, I mean, there are a couple of options. But the solutions we're testing are all going to be in races. I mean, Porsche are seriously looking into this. We're going to see cars in um, 2024 in Le Mans that will be hydrogen powered. And they are as fast as ICE petrol cars. So we are going to see that in, what, two years. And I can't wait to see how they do it because that's really going to show us a roadmap for where we go for 2030. Yeah, And the amazing thing about hydrogen as well, as I believe with those kinds of uh, power units, the only the only waste thing you get is water. Well, you don't get any greenhouse gases, so it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredibly clean. I mean, hydrogen is one of those weird sort of. Th- it, it is the simplest uh, element in in the universe. I mean, it is it is a single atom. Um, it doesn't even have neutrons normally. Um, so, <laughs> and it's um, we can we can make it out of water, as you say. You know, H two O. We've got two hydrogens right there. So it is an abundant source of, of, of fuel. And okay, there are some complications with actually getting the hydrogen. We need to sort of have green ways of doing it. We're looking at building, again, I think it's Porsche that are building this huge factory in Chile, which are using the, the, the roaring 40s, these winds that sweep down the coast and sort of hit Chile to power their plants to actually create this hydrogen fuel that we can use. We talk about different types. We give them stupid names. as blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and brown hydrogen not all um, of which are as environmentally friendly as it sounds. Green hydrogen, though, is great. And obviously, no greenhouse gases, that's fantastic too. So I think it's I think it's part of the future. But again, one of the fun things with the book is I can look back and go even further, even before Formula One, and look at some of the motor racing stuff that was going on. The whole idea of, I, did, I mean, I never realized that the guy who invented Lenny Petrol was also the same guy who invented CFCs. Thank you, Thomas Midgley Jr., for ruining our planet. I don't know how, how he managed to come up with the, the two worst environmental disasters of, uh, of the 20th century. That was really fun, sort of delving back right into the start. And again, I, I never realised that the first race car was electric. So it's almost like we're coming back full circle. Yeah, that was something I was going to mention as well. I, I cannot, I couldn't believe that. That's an incredible fact. And it's, it's such a shame that we moved away from it. Um, Unfortunately, I guess I guess the I guess in the end the petrol powered cars were, were more powerful, but yeah, it's just real shame because yeah, what I mean you, you just think what could have been if um if they ended up going with electric and keeping them a bit like the the six wheel Tyrrell I think you mentioned in the book as well. What could have happened if that was more of a success if it, if people got behind it? Yeah, I mean I mean the six wheel Tyrrell is just something that I I absolutely adore. And there are reasons that they didn't go with it. Obviously, the problem with with the six wheel car is you've now got to have two sets of tires because you've got some dinky tyres and some bigger tyres. So there's some teething problems that you have to address. And, but it just looks fantastic. You look at those races in the 1970s and you see the six-wheeler going around. I think there's now a Williams six-wheeler as well from the 80s that they never actually used in F1 um, that you can find. Or something like the Fan Club, for example, that um, 
was saying you know, Bernie Eccleston tried out, which was absolutely fantastic. But of course, it was a huge cheat. Everyone knew that what was going on. But again, it comes back to the engineers being creative. They are always looking for solutions. And that's why you get things like the double diffuser or you get the... Um, uh, the Oh, what's the, I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm the gas from Mercedes? Yeah, no, I was going for the little, the little, the, the ducts, the F ducts. F ducts. F ducts. I'm sorry. <laughs> Brain freeze for a moment. You get <laughs> fantastic uh, sort of innovations, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Uh, mass dampers used in the Renault cars that Fernando Alonso won the, won the F1 championship in twice. All of these little ideas, and suddenly they spin out. So the fact that we're using mass dampers in skyscrapers, for example, Worth now do a lot of work with uh, aerodynamics in skyscrapers to prevent sort of wash going down the streets and blowing people over. We even use them in supermarket freezers to control the flow of cold air, keeping it in the fridge and stopping it spilling out. And that saves energy and stops your feet getting cold. So there are huge advantages coming out of Formula One in all kinds of areas. And, and that's why I love the sport. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it, we've covered a lot of things here, obviously, but it doesn't even scratch the surface, really, with this book. Honestly, I, I, if you're into if you're into the history of engineering and science, and, and there's a lot of stuff about health as well. I mean, I was just blown up, and it's something that, looking back on it, I, I shouldn't be too surprised about because my son was born a couple of years ago, and he was he was seven weeks uh, seven weeks premature. And obviously, there's all sorts of risks risks around that. But I remember the procedure of actually getting him from. Uh, from the operating table, which effectively is to um, to the first bit. Of, it wasn't the full night. Uh, wasn't the full incubator, but it was the little thing where they just put them in, just give them some oxygen and stuff, make sure they're all right. Um, and look, obviously, I wasn't thinking at the time, but I look back on it now. Just look at the procedure. I think this this really is like an F one pit pit stop. And you mention it in the book, and I thought, oh my god, that's not a coincidence. They actually did that. I just yeah. find that fascinating. That that alone has saved so many lives. At uh, yeah, Great Ormond Street, they looked, they were watching an F1 race one day and they realised that the pit stop with all that coordination of, of, of bodies was exactly the same as moving uh, a small child from an operating theatre. And so they thought, OK, let's introduce our version of a lollipop man, but how do we actually get this right? And the answer was they went over to Ferrari, they watched them in action and Ferrari gave them some pointers. They went over to uh, some of the British teams and they worked with them um, and actually sort of became expert uh, sort of pit crew handlers for the operating theatre. And then you get things like Baby Pod, which is actually designed by Wim to transport uh, ne neonates. It is an incubator that uses F1 tech to keep drivers safe, and it's used to transport some of you know, the most precious cargo on Earth. So I just think that that kind of health uh, benefits just, yeah, you're right, it saves immeasurable numbers of lives. Yeah, as does the safety in motorsport itself, which has saved lots of lives in motorsport, but also in the real world. And, you know, again, another story from, I don't know if I've mentioned, ever mentioned this on the podcast, but when I was about 10 years old, uh, I was driving with my mum to school and uh, a car just came over the hill, T-boned us doing about 60 miles an hour in a 30 zone. We were absolutely fine. No injuries. And, you've, and I think looking back on things, like if that was 20 years ago, probably would have been a broken arm at best kind of thing. You know, the, the, the safety and obviously Sir Jackie Stewart and uh, Professor Sid Watkins, they get a lot of mentions in that section of the book, very rightfully so for their work on improving safety in motorsport. But again, that's another use of how it's transcended from motorsport to the everyday use. I think that was actually probably the hardest chapter to write because I had to, at one point, I just found myself reeling off the names of drivers who were killed. And that's just how things were in the 60s and 70s. It was, it was absolutely horrific. 
And you're absolutely right. You know, so Jackie Stewart, he gets in an accident at Spa. Essentially, he's he's trapped because he can't get the wheel off. Two drivers fortunately pull him out and save his life. But the ambulance drivers go to the wrong hospital. There wasn't the, 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 the infrastructure in place. And when you get um, Bernie Eccleston driving down, finding Sid Watkins saying, you know, come on board, and he's doing his spot checks. At one point, he goes to, to the ambulance crew and they've locked the medicine cabinet. There's no access to it. Some places don't even have a medical centre. And you see the difference between the quality of, of, of care where drivers are are dying um, horrifically. You've got cases like Ronnie Peterson in the book, Jochen Rins, I mentioned. And then you jump down to the 1990s, where there was a crash in Monaco and the driver was immediately taken to a specialist brain centre and almost certainly saves his life. And this being a couple of weeks after the Ayrton Senna crash, and obviously you've got Ron Ratzenberger as well. Uh, since then, we've been very fortunate in that there's only been one tragedy in, in F1. But you, you sort of leapfrog. And one of the things I do in the book is I, I spend uh, 27 seconds, which is the time it took from the crash for Roman Grosjean at Bahrain uh, to getting him out of the car. The fact that there are so many things that go right in that crash to save his life, even though things went wrong. I mean, the, the fact that the, um, the safety cell did crush in and it pinned his leg. There were so many different aspects from the halo, which Roman himself will admit he was initially very skeptical of. He wasn't eager to have the halo it saved his life obviously today we've got uh, changes to uh, in this in the 2022 car to prevent things like the, the the fireball explosion we actually saw that disconnect happening but so many things went right in procedure in training in design of the car that saved roman grosjean's life and so many of those things spill out into technology that we're using in our roads today from barriers to the actual car design itself to just how we operate machinery and how we think about the road. And again, that all spirals out of Formula One. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that crash with Roman Grosjean, that was another one I was going to mention too. I mean, obviously we've all seen that. It was a it was horrific. And there's there's not many times really that I that I generally think when I look at a crash when it first happens and I think, oh, you know, this this is going to be really bad. This that was one of them because the massive fireball and the fact that he jumped out of the car, I think everybody around the world uh, braved a massive sigh of relief. I, I mean, that's that's how I start the book because I was actually writing about safety um, while I was I was in South Korea. I was in this tiny kind of. I'm not allowed to say it's a brothel. That's probably not quite fair. It was um, it, it was a bathhouse. Anyway, it was it was not a particularly nice piece of accommodation. And I'm sitting there, very very temporary, getting out to somewhere nice. I, I'm, I'll watch the Grand Prix, and and I see the crash happen in in real time. And of course, your heart just you sort of leaps. It, it's almost like everything just goes into slow motion. And I remember I, I didn't see the Senna crash um, myself. I mean, I was actually I was living in Hong Kong at the time, so I was in bed. But I remember the impact it had on my mum, you know, the next day coming down and she just was in tears and said, you know, Ed and Senna's dead. I thought that was going to be my Ed and Senna moment. And the fact that for half a minute almost, I'm watching this unfold and just seeing time go slowly. And then you see him emerge and he's alive. And yes, he does have some injuries, but they're not life-threatening injuries. He survives. He can still walk. He can still talk. I just screamed. I was just, yes! Come, I, I can't describe the euphoria of seeing, you know, a stranger who I've never met, who, um, I'll be honest, never particularly my favourite driver. Um, but just just this human being surviving that that horrific ordeal was just, 
uh, euphoria. Yeah, and I, I agree with you 100% there. As, as a driver, I've never been that much of a fan of Grosjean, obviously, for his, uh, for his incidents earlier on in his career. But as, as a guy, as a person, he's uh, he seems like a really, really nice person. And um, yeah, for him to survive that and be back racing and racing well in IndyCar, yeah, like he really- is. Uh, which is fantastic. And, and yeah, the, but the most important thing is he seems like a nice guy. You know, he's, he's a family guy and the, their family's still got a dad. And that is the most important thing at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely check out Racing Green. Uh, I'm not sure. Is it, is it out yet at the time of recording or? It's, it's out March 3rd. So it depends when you, when. <laughs> <laughs> well, time of the recording, it's not out, but uh, it will be out just a few days after this podcast goes out, it's going to go out about a week or so after we, uh, after we record this. So it's pretty much going to go out on release day. I imagine we might time it. So it's the same. So yeah. It'll, where, where can people find it? Uh, you can find it all good bookshops. Uh, oh God, that sounds so cliche, doesn't it? But, but it's true. <laughs> you can find it in all good bookshops. You can find it in all bad bookshops as well. Probably. Uh, you can find it online. All good and bad bookshops and everything in between as well. Uh, yeah, definitely <laughs> check it out. Like I said, I highly recommend it. There's so much information in here. Uh, it took me quite a while to get through it all, um, purely because I was just researching some of the stuff you mentioned uh, throughout the book as well. Because whenever I see something like that, I'm thinking, no, this really, I never knew this. And I, and I look it up. So that there's so, honestly, you can have a lot of fun with this when you can spend a lot of time with it. It's not your first book, though. I have looked at your website, uh, kitchapman.co.uk. You do have another book as well that you wrote a few I, years ago. I do. Um, so that's so that's called Super Heavy, Making and Breaking the Periodic Table. And that is that is my first love of, of, of nuclear bombs. It's how we make elements that don't exist on Earth. And there is a bit of engineering involved, a bit of chemical wizardry, a bit of physics as well. But if you're really interested in, in sort of how we actually extend chemistry into all, all the building blocks of the universe, uh, yeah, please check it out. And that that's, uh, yeah, came out 2019, I think, so. Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, any idea what the next one might be? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working uh, on a non-fiction one at the moment, which I can't say too much about, but there's probably going to be some travelling around the world because that's just how I roll. And I'm also working on a, um, a fiction piece uh, in America. I've, I've been, I'm working on a, a vampire fiction book, uh, which is going to be a complete change of pace. I'm sure it'll be better than Twilight. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of faith in you there. <laughs> it just matter i hope so there. i don't know if it came through on the mic <laughs> i'm sure it will be i'm sure it will be Hells as well as twilight i don't care <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough i think you'll struggle to get back on a, on the on this podcast uh, if you do do that but it, you never know <laughs> no it's been it's been a pleasure uh kit thank you for joining us on this show it's uh, it's been a great interview thank you so much for having me and uh, yeah, if you want to check out some of our merchandise, you can head over to f1chronicle.com forward slash store. That includes mer- merchandise such as uh, mugs, T-shirts like the one I'm wearing right now and hoodies. Just head over to there to find some uh, merchandise if you want to go and support the show. You can also head over to our Patreon as well. We've got a few supporters on there now. So thank you very much for your donations. Helps us get better mics, uh, lights and recording equipment, of course. And if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, you get a shout out at the start of the show. And uh, we also normally go out live. This one's not a live one. This is a uh, this is a pre-recorded episode. But after the after the session has uh, finished, whether it's qualifying or the race, we normally go out about a lo- an hour or so uh, live on on our YouTube channel F1 Grid Talk. And you can also find us on Amazon, Apple Music, uh, Spotify, 
Uh, scroll down. There we go. Verbal Omni Studio Pocket Cast and the Afro Chronicle website, of course, where you can catch our big back catalogue of shows. 100 ep- 170 episodes now. We're getting towards 200, which is just incredible. We couldn't do it without you guys. Kit's nodding in uh, in approval there. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> We're going for a few years now. Um, and yes, we'll be back at the weekend to go over the new 2022 regulations for everybody that's wanting to get the load down on those ahead of the new season. Until then, goodbye and thank you very much. Thank you.